I love being able to be here and to worship with you guys and to call you family. And I love when I get to share words from our Father. I've been excited about bringing uh, this passage that we have today and sharing it with you guys to share the way the Lord's used it to cut me and to heal me, as Chris likes to say. Uh, We're going to be in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 5. Uh, But before we get started, let's pray. Father, we praise you. And we come to you with empty hands. We cling to the cross. We ask for your spirit to move, God. I ask that you would use these words that I prepared from your words to cut all of us and to heal us and to make us like Jesus. Only you can do this. Jesus, I see you would be exalted. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Matthew 5, verse 13. Uh, For context, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. So the greatest sermon ever preached. Matthew's told us all about Jesus, but this is the first time we actually get to hear him speak. Uh, And just like Matthew said that he started off his ministry by saying the kingdom of heaven is drawn near, Jesus starts off his sermon with these pronouncements called uh, Beatitudes. And Chris introduced them last week, and we're going to spend more weeks in them coming up. Uh, But for now, we just need to kind of grapple with the weird counterintuitive gracious message that they have. Because Jesus basically said, the mourners, the meek, the people who desperately need God's help, people who are spiritually bankrupt and know it, these are the people who are flourishing. These are the people who receive the blessings of the kingdom that he's bringing near. Our passage starts right after that, in verse 13. And Jesus turns to these disciples, and he starts to tell them the kind of life that he's calling them to live, which is also the kind of life he's calling us to live. So if you hear the word of the Lord, Matthew 5, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. 
Jesus has a lot of surprising things here. To start, he's talking this uh, ragtag group of ex-fishermen who just left their nets behind. And he says, you guys, you're going to be the salt and light of the whole world. These uneducated commoners are going to flavor the whole world and somehow uh, bring hope to it and guidance like a light in the dark. That sounds crazy. But it doesn't just sound crazy. Back then, it verged on blasphemous. Because who is this rabbi who's saying that his disciples are going to be the light of the whole world? It sounds like he's replacing God's word with his own teaching. And that's why Jesus goes on in verse uh, 17 and says he hasn't come to abolish the law. He's come to fulfill it. The law and the prophets are pointing to him all along. They were anticipating his kingdom mission. He says, because I fulfill them, that's why you actually have to obey every single thing that I command. (laughs) It's a lot to take in. And then he tops it off with this finger. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Imagine when the disciples heard this like they're, all these things are hard to sank into the pit of their stomachs, right? <laughs> like they're not an impressive group of people, right? They uh, just left their nets behind. Uh, they can be salty, sure, you know, but they're not going to be the salt of the world, And they're not the brightest bunch, so how are they going to light it up? The big thing is when Jesus then said, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That wasn't, didn't seem possible to them. They would say, Jesus, this is too much. Because, listen to this, I don't think we understand what that sounds like. Because we might think Pharisees are bad guys, but to them, Pharisees are about the most disciplined and serious people about keeping the law that you could find. They made up their own rules to make sure they didn't break God's rules. They didn't just tithe their money, they tithe the, the herbs they clipped from their gardens. They didn't just live more impressively than everyone else. They're the ones who taught them what it means to be righteous in the first place. Are you kidding? Um... If we have to be more righteous than the Pharisees, that sounds like really bad news. Because righteousness is important. Uh, Righteousness in the Bible is about how we can be rightly related to God and rightly related to other people. It was a big deal for first century uh, Jews, and it should be a big deal for us. Because we're going to meet God. He's bringing his kingdom, and he says not everyone's going to be a part of it. When Jesus says, if you want to be a part of it, your righteousness has to exceed that of the professional righteousness people. (laughs) That doesn't sound super good. And if it's hard for them, then we have the same problem, right? Because I don't know about you, but I'm not always that impressed with my own righteousness. (laughs) When I look at my screen time versus my prayer time, I already know I got problems. (laughs) Right? how is this good news? Because think about the whiplash. Back to the disciples, right? They just heard these pronouncements from the Beatitudes. If you are spiritually bankrupt, you know it. The kingdom of heaven is yours. 
They're like, yeah, that sounds like us, right? And then Jesus turns around, oh, you know, but if you're not salty enough, you might as well just be trampled under people's feet. Uh, And if your righteousness isn't better than those super impressive people over there, you're never going to enter the kingdom. It's like, wait, Jesus, which is it? (laughs) What are you talking about? Can we go back to that other message where the poor in spirit get all the blessings of the kingdom? You're asking us to do more than we can bear. How is this good news and not just some kind of soul-crushing burden? Right? Because to be salt and light, it's a big ask of the whole world. I have a hard time believing it for me. Maybe you do too. Maybe you feel like, how can I be a salt and light of the world? That's for, you know, the social butterflies over there who have lots of friends and are really charismatic with people. Or, I can't be the salt and light of the world. I got too much baggage. I have a past. Or, maybe it's, like, it seems really unbelievable for you to have a righteousness that surpasses the pros when you're still struggling to figure out the be a good husband thing. And the kids just keep revealing all this selfishness you didn't know was there. Right? It just comes out in all those little ways. Uh, or maybe you're single. And you hear people say, like, be a, use your freedom and your time to be a light. Serve the Lord with your singleness. It's a gift, but you just don't feel that at all. It's more of a battle to be kind of content. Maybe you feel like you just keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Because let's be honest, life is hard enough as it is, right? When your friend gets diagnosed with cancer, how are you supposed to be a light for other people? Whatever your struggle is, we all have them, which is why it's hard to figure this out. It doesn't sound like good news. How is it good news? I think there's a good answer for that. But to get to it, we're actually going to start at the end of the passage. And as we work backwards, we're going to see two things. We're going to see that Jesus asks more from us than we can bring to the table. But he does that because he wants to bring us to his table. That doesn't make sense right now. Trust me, it will. First, we'll see how Jesus asks more from us. He really does. Then we bring to the table. And verse 19 and 20 is where we're going to start, because here that's where Jesus says your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's a righteousness we can't achieve. We don't bring it to the table. But before we dive into that, have you ever noticed that we, we do fixate on what we can bring to the table? We fixate on what do I have to offer? What do I do better than other people? Maybe you think about how you're more disciplined or you use your time better. Maybe you feel like you do a better job as a parent or you don't do the bad things like those people. 
We fixate on the kinds of things we bring to the table and find security there. Like, I can hide on just knowing a lot of theology. On the flip side, we can also fixate on what we don't bring to the table. Like, I don't, that conversation doesn't come naturally to me. Or you, you'd be thinking this, you know, like, uh, I don't have her personality. Man, I can't seem to get this parenting thing figured out. I just don't fit in. I guess I'm just a failure. We're predisposed to think this way. We think about what we bring to the table, what we don't bring to the table. And it's like from very early on, it's how we figure out how to navigate our way through life to make ourselves feel like we're okay. We do it spiritually too. Whenever we turn inwards on ourselves to look at what we do or what we don't do, to convince ourselves that we're doing enough to be okay, that we measure up. But Jesus, Jesus undermines the lie that stands beneath all of that. So the fact is, we desperately want to know how to do enough to be okay, but we never could. Jesus shatters the lie of our self-reliance. See, if we want to be salt and light, we got to have that better righteousness. But what we're going to see is that righteousness is not possible. A quick glance at the rest of verse 20 shows us that. I mean, the rest of Matthew after verse 20 shows us that. Jesus looks at murder, right? Pretty easy not to murder. I feel like, you know, we have a pretty good track record in this room. But Jesus says, oh, even your anger at other people brings you under God's judgment. Then he turns to lust. You know, not committing adultery is one thing. He says, you look at another woman to lust after in your heart. You've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And then he turns to loving other people. Loving our neighbors is hard enough. But Jesus says you actually have to love and pray for your enemies. Seems so backwards and counterintuitive. That's not just hard, it's crazy. We don't think that way and we certainly don't live it. But Jesus says this is part of God's true standard of righteousness. And he roots it in God's own character in verse 48. At the end of the chapter, he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. See what Jesus does there? In a few moments, he undermines all the ways that the Pharisees and that we try to make God's law doable on our own. What's crazy, though, is that Jesus actually expects us. He seems to really expect us to live in these impossible ways. Look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we can't do it, but Jesus really actually expects us to. It's impossible, and we know it, by the way, because Jesus tells us that. Uh, If you look over in Matthew chapter uh, 19, verse 26, the disciples literally ask him, like, so who can be saved? And he says, with man, it is impossible. Jesus asks from us more than we can bring to the table. But why? Why does he do this? then why does he actually like expect us to live it out? 
The answer is actually pretty simple. He asks us for a righteousness we can never produce for ourselves because he wants to drive us to the end of ourselves. See, we have these habits of self-reliance and Jesus says those are actually prison shackles. And I want to break them so I can lead you out into a place where I'll give you true righteousness. And that's what we're going to see. And verses, uh, you know, in the following verses. See, when Jesus calls us to this righteousness that's so beyond anything we can do, he's trying to break our minds free of all these thoughts that we're held captive to. Because we easily default to treating religion and even Christianity like a self-help guide. Like a book you can crack open, figure out what do I need to do to make sure I uh, get my life in order. And Jesus is saying what you really need is to recognize that you don't need a self-help book. You need a new self. Jesus' standard makes me realize that I couldn't achieve it no matter how hard I tried. I need to be a different person. When Jesus does this, he's saying, the righteousness I'm calling you to isn't just an upgrade on something you already know. It's something different. It's like an alien from some other planet. It's totally outside the realm of human possibility. And if we're going to have it at all, it's going to have to come from outside of ourselves. And thankfully, that's what we receive through Jesus. And we'll see that in verses 17 and 18. See, verse 20, Jesus says, you have to have a righteousness you can't do. Verse 19, he's saying, no, I'm really serious. You have to do this. And verse 17 and 18, he gives us, how on earth could this possibly happen? So in verse 17, Jesus says, I've come to fulfill uh, the law and the prophets. In verse 18, he mentions all these things that he needs to accomplish through his kingdom ministry. What we're going to find is that it's his kingdom ministry that's actually the key for us to live out a totally different kind of righteousness. But to sort it all out, we need to ask, answer a couple questions. One, what does it mean that Jesus is fulfilling the law and the prophets? And how does that help us live a different kind of life? For that, we need the story of the Bible, right? Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, there's been spiritual death. That's where our longing comes from, where our disappointment comes from. It's where uh, our, the hurt comes. It's why we always screw up. And God gave the law and the prophets because he intended to make us new, to undo the damage that sin has caused, to change us on the inside. But then the story of the Bible is how it just didn't work. Israel messed up over and over and over again. But there's hope. Because God finishes what he starts. That change is impossible for man. But with God, all things are possible. And Jesus is saying... I'm fulfilling the law and the prophets, the change that they pointed to, the redemption 
that they were looking toward all along is what I am bringing about. I'm gonna make all of that possible. See, the people in Jesus' day just had it backwards. They thought the law and the prophets would be fulfilled through their work. But Jesus is saying it's gonna be fulfilled through his. See, these verses give us an alternative to depending on what we bring to the table. They tell us about what Jesus brings to the table and they call us to his table. The question uh, is, how how does this happen, right? Verse 18, he says, this is what he came to do, his ministry. He dies on the cross for our sins. He rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven, and he sends the Holy Spirit, just like John the Baptist predicted. The shadows now, because he fulfills the law, disappear. Which is good news, right? Because we don't have to offer sacrifices. We can eat pork and we can eat crawfish. Uh, But it also means that that forgiveness and that uh, heart righteousness becomes available to us through Jesus. But the question that we have to ask is how? Right? Sounds fine and good. What does that mean for me? today, struggling in marriage when work isn't working? How, how does that impact my life now? How do we have access to the kingdom power that gives us a different kind of righteousness and enables us to be salt and light? It's, the answer is actually right back where we started. Jesus wasn't kidding when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The trick is that in order to benefit from what Jesus brings to the table, you can't add it to what you bring to the table. Like Paul, you got to look at what you bring to the table and say, I count it garbage in comparison. You actually got to, you just got to leave your table altogether and you got to go over to his. You've got to become, leave everything that you're good at behind. You have to leave everything you could boast about, any claim, and just to come to Jesus with open and empty hands. See, when you do that, Jesus will change you. The hard part about it, though, is that it means you have to become like a little child who hasn't accomplished anything. But Jesus says that's the way. Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom. My son Isaiah, he's two years, three months old, and he is probably the cutest human being in existence. But he's not really accomplishing anything yet. And that's fine. He doesn't need to. He comes to me with all his needs, and because I love him and I'm his father, I gladly meet those needs. See, it's counterintuitive and backwards for us, but it's the same. We don't need to achieve something. We need to become like a child and come to receive, like the disciples, to leave what we're good at behind and simply come to Jesus, asking for his help to come as little children, 
So, the problem, though, is to be a little child, you have to be born again. Listen, it's entirely possible to come to church, to sing songs, to listen to the sermons, to even volunteer on Sunday mornings, but never to be born again. So I want to encourage you today. If you realize that you've been counting on what you bring to the table, that you've been good enough, that whatever it is, that you would just leave that behind and you would just come to Jesus, receive all that he has for you and he will change you. You know, this isn't just the way we start the Christian life though. It's, It's the way we grow. That's the way we finish. We don't grow up out of being children, funny enough. See, it is dependence from first to last. And if I'm going to be honest with you, I don't really like that. I want something I can boast about. I want something I can feel like prideful about, like I did it. But the fact is, None of what I bring to the table is ever going to be enough. And it doesn't have to be. That's the good news. It's grace from first to last, which means you don't have to have your life together. You don't have to have everything sorted out or have all the answers. The only thing you need is to bring your need to Jesus with open and empty hands. He will meet you and he will change you. See, the gospel of the kingdom demands just great transformation from us. We got to be so different. But it also provides great transformation to us as we come as unassuming children in need of help and ready to be taught. And as we do this, over time, even the most challenging commands, like the command to love and forgive your enemies, will be more and more natural to you. Because you'll be living out of Jesus' righteousness and not your own. And listen, that's how you can be salt and light. Because that's what the world really needs. The world doesn't need more self-righteous rule keepers. It has enough of those. It doesn't need more know-it-alls. And it doesn't need more super popular social butterflies. It has plenty. When your friend loses a loved one or gets diagnosed with cancer, they don't need the life of the party. They need someone who's been through stuff and who's held on to their faith because they found that Jesus was enough. That's light. When someone sins in a big way, they really screw up, they don't need someone who thinks they're better than them stooping down to them to lecture them. 
They need someone who knows how to bring their sin and their insufficiencies to Jesus, to confess them over and over and over again, and to receive his grace over and over and over again. Someone who can love them with his love, who can sit with them and pray for them and actually speak that truth in actual love. Because at the end of the day, people need Jesus. They need people they can see Jesus through. I like to believe that people need what I bring to the table. But they don't. It makes me feel important, but it's not true. And I shouldn't pretend. People don't need us. They need Jesus. We're only good for anything. When we are windows that people can see Jesus through. And we can be that when we come to Jesus with empty and open hands because he fills them so we can shine with his light. Because if Jesus is yours, his light is yours too. So with Jesus, I can say, let your light shine. Not so other people think that you're great, but so that people can see that Jesus is alive and that Yahweh, our God, is worthy to be praised. And there's one more thing. When Jesus calls us a light in verse 14, he says that we are also a city on a hill. And that matters because this whole salt and light thing, it's not a thing that you and I do alone. This is an us command. It means it's a whole BCC vision. Jesus is calling us to create a culture of leaving our tables behind, of coming to his table, of letting Jesus shape our hearts and direct the way we think about our relationships, about one another. And when we do that, he rewires our brain and renews our hearts so that we, over time, start to love more and more naturally, even when people are different from us, even when they're our enemies. That's the kind of community that God uses to compel other people to leave their tables behind and to come to his. That's the way we can shine with a, uh, like light in our world and have other people come with us to partake in the abundance that Jesus has for us at his table. And this, of course, leads us to the table. And this is where we feast in faith, remembering all that Jesus has done for us when he died on the cross and we have full and complete forgiveness. And it's where we feast in hope until proclaiming his death and resurrection until he comes again and makes everything totally new, including you. And this is where we find strength 
to love one another with a love that doesn't make any sense apart from him because it's rooted in his love that he shares with us. It's how we shine like a light in a dark world. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would take these words, that we would not just hear them, but we would respond. God, expose the places in our hearts where we're prideful. Expose the places where we need to drop our flawed ways of thinking and feeling and instead uh, just come to you. Offer you our emptiness to receive from you your grace, your love, your Holy Spirit. So we be powered by you, Jesus. By your kindness rather than our pride and anxiety as we come to this table. Let us remember to proclaim and to rely on you as little children, dependent on you for everything from the first to last. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.